You're listening to Sermon Audio from Jerusalem Church, an independent Reformed church in Mannheim, Pennsylvania. Our expository preaching ministry is devoted to proclaiming the law and the gospel for the glory of God and the salvation, growth, and comfort of Christ's church. If you'd like to know more about our church, visit us online at JerusalemChurch.net. Here's a message that we hope strengthens your faith and comforts your soul. One afternoon, uh, Jeremiah was set to return home from school, and Peter planned on messing with Jeremiah a little bit. Well, the front door opened, and Peter jumped out, Ah! and it was the plumber. <laughs> and Peter said that the plumber looked surprised and, uh, and kind of laughed and went on with his business, and Peter was embarrassed, and he went back in the living room. When Jeremiah was a baby, the, the three of us went to a lake house with friends, and I was standing in this opening of, of a room, and one of the other wives uh, came up close to me and tickled my side. It, it was an, an awkward invasion of my personal space. She thought I was her husband. In college, Christina's good friends, Emily and Jen, uh, were in the cafeteria getting food, and Emily saw Jen's tray, uh, but Jen wasn't around. And so Emily, she thought it would be really funny to mess with Jen a little bit. And so she started wildly cramming Jen's food into, into her mouth. Now, that's funny. That's funny for college people. Uh, but it's even funnier considering it wasn't Jen's tray. <laughs> so the food on the tray belonged to this other college female who was a proper young lady and was very surprised to see Emily cramming her food into her mouth. Now, it can be embarrassing to get the wrong person. In fact, it can be more than embarrassing. Getting the wrong person can be devastating. Think about a murder trial or friendly fire in war. Think, think about how Jacob must have felt the morning after his wedding when he woke up and saw that Leah was beside him and not Rachel. And friends, it is infinitely more serious to mistake a false God for the one true living God. God warns us about soul-destroying idolatry in the first commandment. We were made to know, confess, and commune with the one true living God. Why do you exist? Your chief end, your foremost purpose, the reason for your entire life is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And the assumption in that purpose is that you glorify and enjoy the right God the one true living God, and not an imaginary God. Theo means God, and logi means the science of or knowledge of. Theology is the science of God, the study of God, seeking knowledge of God. When someone says that they're not really into theology, they're essentially saying, I'm not really interested in knowing God. You can know a lot of true theology and not truly know God, but you cannot truly know God without knowing true theology. Theology is all important because we need to respond 
the right way to the right God. So here's what I want us to think about this morning. To truly know, confess, and commune with the one true living God, you must know, confess, and commune with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to know, confess, and commune with God? Let me clarify what I mean by by these terms. To know God is not simply knowing truths about God. It's covenantal fellowship with God based on true knowledge of God. Intellectual knowledge about God is like a college classroom, whereas covenantal fellowship with God is like marriage. I'm talking about oneness and relational intimacy with God. And there is no true intimacy without true theology. In 1 Thessalonians 1.9, Paul talked about the Thessalonians turning to God from idols to serve the living and true God. In Galatians 4.8, Paul told the church, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. The Galatians didn't know God. But they they heard gospel preaching and by the Spirit's powerful work, they came to know God relationally, intimately, personally, covenantally in and through Christ. And Paul told them in Galatians 4, 9, but now that you have come to know God or rather to be known by God, How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? To know God begins with being known by God. God takes initiative to reveal himself to sinners. If someone confesses to know God, but God doesn't agree, they don't know God. But all those who are known by God come to truly know God. In his high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus prayed, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus rescued you from your sin and misery to give you life in himself that you may truly know God. What does it mean to confess God? The Greek word homologeo, that's that's the Greek word. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God and so forth. Homologeo means to profess, to acknowledge the truth of, to emphatically declare. To confess the one true living God is to vocalize your true faith in the one true God. What good is it then to confess a false God? The only confession that counts, people, is the confession of the one true living God. Now today... A biological man can ignore the Bible and science and confess that he's a woman and be applauded. 
And the same is true for many who confess God. They confess soul-destroying heresy and they're accepted as Christians. Their so-called Christian books sell millions of copies. Their churches are loaded with people. Lots of so-called Christians confess a false God because they don't truly know God. Homo legeo shows up in Matthew 10, 32, where Jesus says, so everyone who acknowledges or confesses me before men, I also will acknowledge or confess before my Father who is in heaven. It's assumed that Jesus was talking about confessing him as he truly is, as he revealed himself to us and not a misconception of him. Theology is all important because we must confess God as he truly is. What does it mean to commune with God? According to Webster's 1828, the word commune means to converse, to talk together familiarly, to impart sentiments mutually in private or familiar discourse. How do we discourse with God? How does God speak to us? How do we speak to God? God speaks to us through his holy word, read, studied, preached, and believed. We speak to God in prayer. We respond by prayerful dependence on the Holy Spirit, and we express our love and devotion by obeying God's good law. That's communing with God. God even gives the sacraments by which he strengthens our communion with him. We receive, we listen, we eat, we drink, we believe, we cherish, we respond, we pray, we obey, we walk with God. Many professing Christians today seek communion with God through mysticism or experientialism or bizarre rituals as if a rational mind is irrelevant. Or worse, a hindrance to knowing God. Well, Paul said things like, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds. But we have the mind of Christ. God wants head and heart. It's great for a husband to passionately love his wife. But his love devastates her if he's schizophrenic and passionately loves her because he thinks she's a tree. Next, to know, confess, and commune with God is to know, confess, and commune with the Father. Now let me first say some things about the Trinity. As Christians, we confess the unity of God. God is uniquely one. We also confess the triunity of God. God is three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Apostles' Creed has three sections following the three divine persons of the Trinity. Referring to the Apostles' Creed, Heidelberg 24 asks, how are these articles divided? It answers this, into three parts. The first is about God the Father and our creation. The second, about God the Son and our redemption. The third about God, the Holy Spirit, and our sanctification. So the Apostles' Creed is a Trinitarian creed that explains the Trinity and creation, redemption, and sanctification. Heidelberg 25 then asks, since there is only one God, or in some translations, since there is only one divine being, 
or since there is but one only divine essence, why do you speak of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And it answers, because God has so revealed himself in his word that these three distinct persons are the one true eternal God. God doesn't reveal himself to you in unity and triunity through some weird mysticism or emotional experience devoid of biblical truth. He reveals himself to you in and through his self-revelatory word illumined by his Holy Spirit. Hence the importance and the prominence of sound preaching in corporate worship. Now we'll get into more detail in the coming weeks, unpacking some of these things. But for now, I, I just want to make the point that Westminster Larger Catechism 9 makes. There are three persons in the Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one true eternal God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory, although distinguished by their personal properties. Head scratcher. What are personal properties? Westminster Larger Catechism 10 explains it. What are the personal properties of the three persons in the Godhead? Now pay attention to this. It is the property of the Father to beget the Son. We cannot say that about the Son or the Spirit. The property of the Father to beget his Son, and of the Son to be begotten of the Father. Can't say that about the Father or the Spirit. And of the Holy Spirit to proceed from the Father and the Son. Can't say that about the Father and the Son. From all eternity. Look, I'm an infant trying to explain quantum physics to other infants. God is incomprehensible. But what God graciously reveals in Scripture, you and I must believe. And the ancient creeds clarify God's self-revelation in Scripture so we can rightly know, confess, and commune with God. They're very helpful. M meditate on the Athanasian Creed. That, that will do you so much good. So much good. You should know the Athanasian Creed by heart. Every word. No, I don't. I don't. But it would be helpful if we all memorized the Athanasian Creed. It will help you think rightly about God. And you'll notice that the Athanasian Creed is repetitive for the sake of clarity and understanding. So let me read for you a lengthy portion. Try to read. I'll try to make this interesting in how I read this. I'm going to read a lengthy portion because it clarifies the Trinity for your greater understanding so that you can know, confess, and commune with the one true living God. I think you'll find this helpful. It says this. Now, this is the Catholic or universal, not talking about the Roman Catholic Church, this is the Catholic universal faith. That we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity. Neither confounding, big word, we could say blending or mixing, not doing that, their persons, nor dividing the essence. 
Talked about that last time. For the person of the Father is a distinct person. The person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one. The glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Spirit. The Father is uncreated, the Son is uncreated, the Holy Spirit is uncreated. The Father is immeasurable, the Son is immeasurable, the Holy Spirit is immeasurable. The Father is eternal, the Son is eternal, the Holy Spirit is eternal, and yet there are not three eternal beings. There is but one eternal being. So too, there are not three uncreated or immeasurable beings. There is but one uncreated and immeasurable being. Similarly, the Father is almighty, the Son is almighty, the Holy Spirit is almighty. Yet there are not three almighty beings. There is but one almighty being. Thus the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. Yet there are not three gods, there is but one God. Thus the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord. Yet there are not three lords, there is but one Lord. Just as Christian truth compels us to confess each person individually as both God and Lord, so Catholic religion forbids us to say that there are three gods or lords. The Father was neither made nor created nor begotten from anyone. The Son was neither made nor created. He was begotten from the Father alone. The Holy Spirit was neither made nor created nor begotten. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. Accordingly, there is one Father, not three fathers. There is one Son, not three sons. There is one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. None in this trinity is before or after. None is greater or smaller. In their entirety, the three persons are co-eternal and co-equal with each other. So in everything, as was said earlier, the unity in trinity and the trinity in unity is to be worshipped. Now that's really helpful. Let's not change that around. Let's just believe what that said. You're not going to improve on that. That's true because that's what Scripture teaches. One God, or we could say one essence, or we could say one divine being, three distinct persons. Not three gods, not three beings, not three essences. One God, one divine being, one essence, not three forces, not three modes, not three expressions of God, three persons. Say that with me. Persons. Persons, persons, all right. And you can know, confess, and commune with the three persons of the one true God. Theology, folks, is for the purpose of covenantal union, fellowship, and intimacy with the one true living God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Here's what I'm getting at. To truly know, confess, and commune with the one true living God, you must know, confess, and commune with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Athanasian Creed adds something important that we need to hear today. It says this, 
Anyone then who desires to be saved should think thus about the Trinity. Folks, there is no salvation outside of knowing, confessing, and communing with the one and only triune God. No salvation with a false god, with an idol. The ministry of Jerusalem Church aims at helping you know, confess, and commune with the one and only triune God. That's exactly why theology is important here. You and I knowing God rightly. So we fight aggressively against idolatry. We must. By preaching the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We believe and confess the Trinity because it's, it's how God has revealed himself to us in his word. Moses records in Genesis 1.26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. That's divine unity and plurality. John 1, 1 through 5 is similar. John writes, In the beginning was the word. So we know the word is eternal. And the word was with God. So the word is distinguished from God. And the word was God, so the word possesses the divine essence. And then John adds in verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. So now we know that the word is an eternal person who is God, but is distinguished from God. At the baptism of Jesus, the Holy Spirit descended and rested on Jesus. And the Father said from heaven, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And during his life, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Later during his ministry, Jesus said, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. And in the Great Commission, Jesus mentioned the name, singular, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. God reveals himself in Scripture as unity and triunity. And then Paul expanded on Jesus' theology by saying things like, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Paul also said, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And then in his introduction... To 1 Peter, the apostle Peter mentioned the foreknowledge of God the Father, the sanctification of the Spirit, and the blood of Jesus Christ. We believe and confess the Trinitarian Apostles' Creed because it summarizes what God has revealed to us in his word. So then, the Father is God and is a divine person to commune with. Paul said in Romans 1.7 and 1 Corinthians 1.3, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And Paul said in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is over all and through all and in all. Is this comforting? Absolutely. Absolutely. Jesus said, fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. 
Brothers and sisters, our Father is pleased to give us the kingdom. In Ephesians 1, 4 and 5, Paul says that in love, just let that, just let that hit, linger on that. In love, the Father, he, the Father, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Oh, that'll give you comfort. In 1 John 3, 1, the apostle wrote, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. God is not mother. That's a false God. God is Father who loves you and has adopted you to himself, to belong to him forever, to, forever. So to know, confess, and commune with God is to know, confess, and commune with the Father. Next, to know, confess, and commune with God is to know, confess, and commune with the Son. Now, many people today passionately confess Jesus. All amped up about Jesus but the Jesus they confess is quite different than the Jesus revealed in Holy Scripture. Name is the same. Person is different. Mega church pastor Robert Morris, you might know his name, from Gateway Church in Texas, preached this, quote, Even though Jesus was fully God, he completely laid down his divinity when he was on this earth. Completely so that he could be fully human. That's heresy. Bill Johnson, Todd White, and others teach this heresy. We've probably sung this heresy. John Wesley's hymn, And Can It Be, says, emptied himself of all but love. That's wrong. That's not true. When we confess together that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, those words are packed with meaning. We are confessing what Heidelberg 35 explains, the eternal Son of God who is and remains true and eternal God took upon himself a true human nature from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary through the working of the Holy Spirit. That is what we're confessing. That's the Jesus we know. We confess Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. The angel told Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And Matthew 1.23 adds, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. He didn't lay aside his divinity. He assumed humanity while remaining what he was eternally, God immutable. In John 10, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. They tried to stone him after he said that because they considered his claim to be God blasphemy. 
And Jesus responded, Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Jesus said in his high priestly prayer, and really think about the meaning and implication of this statement, and now, Father, glorify me. He's asking the Father to glorify him in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He is distinct from the Father, yet consubstantial, co-eternal, and co-equal. Westminster Shorter Catechism 21 says, the only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who, being the eternal Son of God, became man and so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. That is a glorious truth. God has revealed this to us in his word. Hebrews 1.8 says, But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. That's God's declaration of the Son. Colossians 2.9 says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Hebrews 1.3 says, The Son is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, or we could say imprint of his divine essence. Romans 9.5 says, Christ is God over all. 1 John 5.20 says that Jesus is the true God and eternal life. Brothers and sisters, to know, confess, and commune with God is to know, confess, and commune with God's only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. Know Jesus, know God. If you want to know God, you must know, confess, and commune with Jesus as the God-man revealed to you in Holy Scripture. Next. To know, confess, and commune with God is to know, confess, and commune with the Spirit. Just consider for a moment that 60% of evangelicals in the United States agree that the Holy Spirit is a force but is not a personal being. Sixty percent of U.S. evangelicals affirm heresy. Do they truly know, confess, and commune with the Holy Spirit when they don't believe he's a person? Acts 5 records the sobering story of Ananias and Sapphira's deceit and deaths. Striking story. And Peter says to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? In the next verse, Peter added, you have not lied to man, but to God. The Holy Spirit is God. He is equally glorious and worthy of our worship and praise. He is uncreated, immeasurable, eternal, almighty, and Lord. The Holy Spirit was not made nor created nor begotten. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. He is consubstantial, co-eternal, and co-equal. And folks, he's awesome. Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples and he taught them about the Holy Spirit. He said, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Masculine, personal pronoun. The Holy Spirit is he who helps you. 
He is the spirit of truth who guides believers into all truth. He speaks the message of God and glorifies the Son. In 2 Corinthians 3.17, Paul says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. The Holy Spirit regenerates heart and gives new birth, and everyone who confesses that Jesus is Lord does so in the Holy Spirit. Jesus told his disciples what is true of all Christians today. He said, You know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. To know, confess, and commune with God is to know, confess, and commune with the Holy Spirit who is ever with you and who is in you. In fact, knowing, confessing, and communing with the Holy Spirit is evidence that you truly belong to Christ. Paul said in Romans 8, 9, You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. You don't have the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to Christ. The bond of your union with Christ is the person of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's working right now to sustain and to build up your faith through the word that the Holy Spirit inspired. The Heidelberg 53 simply explains expresses about the Holy Spirit what God has revealed in Scripture. First, he is, together with the Father and the Son, true and eternal God. Second, he is also given to me. I love how personal the Heidelberg is. We're owning this. Second, he has also given to me, he is also given to me, to make me by true faith share in Christ and all his benefits, to comfort me, and to remain with me forever. Now that's the comforting truth of the Holy Spirit. That's for you to possess that truth and to be helped by that truth. Does the Holy Spirit make people bark or shake uncontrollably or speak absolute nonsense or act intoxicated or contort their bodies or laugh historically on the ground? Hysterically on the ground? Not historically. That's a different thing. Equally as weird. I don't know what it is. <laughs> laugh hysterically on the ground. Friends, many so called Christians attribute this kind of very strange behavior to the Holy Spirit. And yet these strange manifestations look exactly like occult manifestations. Our comfort, assurance, strength, and hope is this. The Holy Spirit has been given to us to strengthen and sustain our faith in Christ, to make us share in Christ and all his benefits, to comfort us, to remain with us, to give us the mind of Christ, to sanctify us, to help us know, confess, and commune with God. His power and his work are not bizarre, But they are powerful, and they are life-changing, and they are mysterious, and we cannot fully comprehend them. For without the Holy Spirit, we would never know, confess, and commune with God. So let's apply this a little bit. When you truly know, confess, and commune with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, you find deep purpose, meaning, and identity in the gospel. Presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy says that young people are hungry for purpose and meaning today. He says they hunger for identity. I think he's right. I think he's right. 
And though I think we could greatly use a revival of national purpose, meaning, and identity, a revival of national purpose, meaning, and identity will not ultimately solve the problems of human emptiness, loneliness, purposelessness, aimlessness, and sinfulness. We, we need more, folks. Years ago, actor Shia LaBeouf said, I have, this is a quote, I have no idea where this insecurity comes from, but it is like a God-sized hole. If I knew, I'd fill it, and I'd be on my way. Folks, God-sized holes are only filled by God. We find our purpose, our meaning, and identity in the gospel, in who God is for us, in what God has done for us. In this series, The Gospel for Life, is about exploring who God is and what God has done for us. And you might feel empty, lonely, purposeless, aimless. You might feel very, very sinful. If so, the gospel is good news for you. God is good news for you. Who he is and his, his marvelous works, that's what we're after in this series. Here's what unlocks for you true comfort in life and death, knowing, confessing, and communing with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and knowing how God's marvelous works attest to his glory and benefit you. Theology is useful. I'm sorry. Theology is useless for you until you understand how it connects to your life. Do you understand what I'm saying there? It will do you no good unless you know how theology connects to your life. And that's, that's what we're trying to do here. And so I'll close with an important aspect of this series. This is what I hope this series does for you. The doctrine of the Trinity is directly connected to your daily struggles and integral to your hope, strength, and joy. Romans 15, 13 says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Your hope, joy, peace, and strength in your daily struggles, even the power of the Holy Spirit in your daily struggles, come in believing, in faith, through faith. And as you trust the Father and trust the Son and trust the Holy Spirit, guess what happens? You abound in hope. You possess the benefits of the gospel. In order to possess the benefits of the gospel, you need to know, confess, and commune with God as he truly is. And you must receive the benefits of the gospel of a crucified and risen Christ by grace alone, through faith alone. And the Holy Spirit, this is, this is beautiful. The Holy Spirit graciously and powerfully works this faith in our hearts by the gospel. I think what this series, The Gospel for Life, is about is coming to know God more intimately and knowing how the essence and identity of God connects to your daily struggles. The Father is God. Okay, how does he connect to your anxiety Anger, impatient, fear, bad attitude, etc. That's, that's what we're doing here. Okay, the Son is God. Okay, how does He connect to your lust, greed, envy, deception, etc.? 
The Holy Spirit is God, okay? How does he connect to your struggling marriage? Strained relationship with your kids? Poor work ethic? Attraction to worldliness? Besetting sins, etc.? What we're going to do is dig into God the Father in our creation, God the Son in our redemption, and God the Holy Spirit in our sanctification in order that we know, confess, and commune with God so that we can have hope and strength for our daily struggles. Theology is all important because our salvation, comfort, peace, assurance, joy, strength, and perseverance depend on trusting into the one true living God. We must know God as he truly is in order to be saved from our sin and misery and in order to glorify and enjoy God now and forever. So I'll I'll end with this. Do I honor and love Christina if I think of her as an atheist or a man or an alien? She is none of those things. And if I thought about my beloved wife in these strange ways, not only would she be deeply offended and upset, but my weird thoughts about her would greatly influence how I relate to her and how I would relate to her with these very strange things in my head would not be good, not be healthy. How much more do misconceptions about God drive us away from true intimacy with God? And though we all, you need to hear me say this, this slight clarification that some of this stuff has big time nuance to it. And though we all have some misconceptions about God, amen? I mean, who in here has God all figured out? Not me. Though that is true, there are some misconceptions that are so serious, they prove that those who have these egregious misconceptions don't actually know, confess, and commune with God as is the case with Mormons, Hindus, Muslims, Jews, and many others. Here's the point, and here's why theology in this series matter, that they're important. To truly know, confess, and commune with the one true living God, you must know, confess, and commune with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God, one essence, one being, Three divine, distinct, and indivisible persons. And because of the cross and resurrection, I've got great news. You can know this amazing triune 